the most uh, intelligent quote that you would ever find from a politician is from the rumsfeld right you have known knowns known unknowns and unknown unknowns i mean it is something that you can use in any scenario anywhere and it would be valid imagine if if, if your child grew up in a suraj barjatia style household where everything was sing song and dance and party the chances that an adverse outcome can completely topple the child the chances increase your job is not related to your stock market right you think both of them are independent but what we do not know inherently is the probability of you getting fired increases as your stock market portfolio goes down if imagine that i'm doing dollar dollar against rupee dollar against china as an simpler example right now in current benign environment world you would think that china and india slightly yes they are emerging markets therefore they are correlated but they are not so correlated that there is a slightly you know it's like a dog and a drunkard with a positive 20% correlation right Hello and welcome to Data Shatter, the podcast on all things data. This podcast is a series of conversations with experts and industry leaders in data, and each week we aim to unpack a different compartment of the data suitcase. I am your host Karthik Shashidhar. I am a blogger, newspaper columnist, book author, and a former data and strategy consultant. I currently head analytics and business intelligence for Delivery, one of India's largest logistics companies. You can follow me on Twitter at Karthik S. That is K A R T H I K S, and read my blog at Noenthuda. dot com. That is N O E N T H U D A. dot com. All opinions expressed in this podcast belong to me and my podcast guests, and I do not reflect the views of any organizations we might be associated with. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be taken as financial or legal advice. The fundamental principle underlying all analytics and data science is probability, and probability was first invented, or should I say, discovered, to assess risk. So, what is risk? Can we quantify and measure it? How do we handle risk in life? And is risk always bad? Today's guest on Data Chatter is Balu Omsi Tatavarti, who is co-founder and investment advisor at Aravalli Asset Management, a global arbitrage fund. Bal was my classmate at IIT Madras where he studied computer science but spent most of his time gaming. He then went on to IIM Ahmedabad where he continued to game heavily and graduated with a gold medal. He now runs a hedge fund but still spends most of his time gaming. Moreover, he was one of the last traders to trade on behalf of Lehman Brothers on 15th September 2008. Risk as you can imagine is a vast subject and so this is a long podcast. we talk about measuring risk problems with too much measurement of risk how risk can be managed and all that we also talk about movies games the differences between poker and bridge and physics and we enjoy welcome to data chatter so i'll start with a loaded question on 15 september 2008 you were working for lehman brothers 
you were probably one of the last people to actually trade on behalf of Lehman Brothers ever. So what's your definition of risk? Uh, it's funny. I mean, I'll talk you over what actually happened on that day. Uh, I mean, uh, on Friday, I remember closing some trades in Brazil. I was massively long gamma. I have seen Bear Stearns fall. I positioned my books, you know, saying that there's going to be a lot of volatility, but A, Lehman Brothers is not going to collapse, So, but the markets will be volatile and I was positioned. And on Sunday night uh, in New York, I was trading and by that time, news was not over there yet. And I was trading my gamma. First, I traded my positions on the machine. Then I had to shout it over to, uh, you know, my colleagues in Singapore saying that, you know, buy 10 million euros, sell 10 million euros to trade that gamma. Then initially what would happen was uh, the machine was stopped. Then the trader would take immediately give me the, like they shout back the price, you know, over that line and it was instantaneous. Then it would take about a minute. And after that, it was like, three minutes and five minutes, I was like, what's happening? And, you know, an hour later is like, nobody is taking our name. And that's when I realized that, okay, it's all over. And, you know, so that's like your first, you know, real world. Like you joined, you joined a company, which is like one of the, uh, you know, top five in US and, you know, considered to be next to Goldman Sachs and, and in the way, in the trading mentality. And then one fine day, uh, and even like a month before, right, your CEO comes on the floor saying that we will win, we will do back. And, you know, a month later, that thing doesn't even exist. And you're out on the road trying to find a job, right? So nothing better introduction to risk. I mean, in fact, when I joined Lehman in 2007, right, on my first day when I was on the trading floor, uh, FX markets, that's when the sub, you know, mortgage crisis started. And my boss, uh, Ed, who joined, uh, you know, he, he was the head of exotics at that point of time. He said, you should watch these markets. You will never see such kind of markets ever again. And, you know, that, that, I don't know whether it was an omen or what, but I have seen worse markets over the next five, six years. Okay. So, so let's talk about risk from multiple perspectives here, right? I mean, let's just take your situation on the 15th of September, 2008. One, your company had collapsed and you were out of a job. Second, is that like, that's on the personal side. Second, on the market side, I think you had seen a bit of a roller coaster ride over the last one year and a bit when you were there with Lehman and so on. And so you had seen the markets do lots of funny things and so on. And so you would have, one of the things you would have had to do as part of your job, I guess, would have been to sort of manage risk in whatever way you can define it and so on. So maybe we can use this to sort of talk about what risk means in a financial sense, what it means from a personal life kind of sense and whether the two are related, we should think about them in different, uh, different ways. You know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because the way we think of risk in personal world is very different from the way you think of risk in financial as well as uh, even economic sense, right? I mean, when we think about, do you want to take that risk? You normally mean, is the downside worth the upside, right? For us in real, in English sense, English, you know, risk is always to the downside. Everything else is, a, I mean, you, you don't talk about taking a risk when you're buying a lottery. You say that, okay, I will lose one rupee or 10 rupees and then I'm going to get a crore, right? So that's the way to think. But in economic sense and in financial world, it's funny, but risk is essentially any deviation from your mean, right? Whether it's positive, I mean, you had an expected outcome of X, uh, the actual outcome is X plus 1%, or X minus 1%, both of them are risks. And the, the whole objective being that you want to narrow the range of outcomes 
uh, the way the banks uh, or you know any person so you want to reach a situation where the risk reduction is nothing but reducing the scope of outcomes or narrowing the range in which the outcomes can happen right so that's i think is the fundamental difference between uh, the way we think of risk in the normal world versus the way you think of risk in the financial world uh so in in real life let's say for example you getting a big bonus is not a risk but from the bank's perspective the likelihood that there's some small probability where you can get significantly more revenues for whatever reason that's a risk which in some sense you that might want to hedge away right yes you might want to right you you would want to you would want to trade off that small probability of getting a bumper profit and for let's say more assured smaller number right so that is a risk in some sense a casino is taking the opposite side where uh, you might have to pay out a lot of money for one guy but you are getting in a lot from smaller nickels you are picking nickels from everyone yep okay great so uh, from this perspective right i mean like i i remember reading this tweet sometime last week i probably sent it to you as well i think it said that like risk once created can never be destroyed it can either be transferred to somebody else or it can be managed or it can be ridden out or i'll probably link to that tweet in the show notes so can you talk about uh, the creation and destruction of risk is it something like entropy in a sort of thermodynamic sense you know it's funny that you mention that and uh, i mean not many people are going to like it when i say this but the whole field of finance and economics suffers from physics envy there is a great desire to associate certain principles and topics to uh, you know the way you want that method and madness like the whole scientific development which happened in 18th and 19th and early 20th centuries and you had this physics laws and maths and principles and you know the boyle's laws ranging from newtonian mechanics to boyle's laws and everything there was some method to that so called madness and we desire and economics has started and you, you know ranging from samsons and you know uh, 1920s and you know when you had the microeconomic demand supply graphs to everything and uh, coming back to your statement that is actually i i don't think it is true i mean i remember reading that and you know i had a counter to it i lend money to sk right i have created the risk tomorrow if sk gives me back that money that risk is destroyed right so that it it is not like once created it can't be destroyed i mean in fact if you want to look at energy energy is neither created nor destroyed you had whole the big bang thing from energy to mass and back to energy it's it's like a closed ecosystem right uh the other thing i should tell you right this is actually lehman brothers is a phenomenal example of what risk is because you know on the monday morning when i went to the office and for one month i just went to the office uh you know scouting for what is going to happen we didn't know searching for jobs but we we were watching the markets but we had nothing to do and i was very happy that it happened because on the other side on the weekends at barclays and i know people because i spoke to them at you know in credit suisse and barclays they were worried because they had no clue what to do with their positions with lehman right my risk was done right job lost and everything but i knew the outcome and it is done risk got eliminated outcome has happened for those guys they didn't know are the positions long if they are sold on options were they still short or since lehman got eliminated were they did positions vanish and suddenly they became long optionality 
you know nobody had a clue right and uh, one of the most uh, i would call it is like a back end operational innovation right imagine you had three banks uh, a b and c and you know that banks do derivatives amongst themselves right and a did a derivative with b b did a derivative with c and c did with a now effectively you had uh, three units of derivative exposure and for some reason all of them of let's say a sold to b b sold to c and c sold to a now there's technically you know 3 into 2 six units on banks balance sheets right now which also means that you had to post mark to market and all those things now, what banks did is because they were worried about this lehman thing they they invented a there was a system i mean where all the banks would post their positions anonymously to a central portal and the portal would basically then try to and there it would also post their valuations for it right you think it is worth x and some other bank thinks it's worth y right if your x is less than y then you can net off right but imagine it is not then you can't so they would basically immend do and try to reduce this counterparty risk right it was it do, it was not there pre uh, you know or rather it was not into a big way this kind of a reducing your risk by sending it to anonymous portals and this thing and some banks actually did that very well they actually did funding arbitrages and all those things uh, uh, you know quite well but the point is that was one kind of a risk reduction right risk was there one day before that risk didn't exist the next day so in that sense no i kind of disagree with the point that risk can neither be created nor destroyed but it is true that while alive and there is no there is always a event which might destroy it but while it is alive you cannot you know there there are limited formats you can only morph it and create it so the usual entropy principles apply as long as it is alive yeah i think uh, what you mentioned about uh, economics and finance having uh, physics envy i mean the first thing that i was thinking of was about how pretty much all of our quantitative finance is it it's based on something like a heat equation right it's 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 they try to ape physics concepts in pretty much every way possible among the other things being i mean the wonderful thing about statistical mechanics if you think of it is that the movement of gases it sort of follow it always not sort of it follows a normal distribution a lot of physical phenomena if you look at the distribution it's always normal uh, normal as in that bell curve distribution so what what that does to us not just in finance or economics but all of us in real life is that we assume that everything in life is normal so one of my favorite things is that like people think that there exists this thing called a middle class because they think wealth is normally distributed and so that everybody in the middle in the, is is the middle class and then you have the upper tail for the rich and the lower tail for the poor but if you look at any data you know that like for example wealth is not distributed normally or if you uh, or even like sort of payoffs from different events are not distributed normally even though we try to sort of sometimes pretend that they are normal so can you talk about this uh, thing of like why is it that like we uh, sort of uh, uh, always think of things as being normal and like how do you deal with uh, Uh, how do you deal with long tail distributions in terms of risk and like well, which is riskier how uh, and what are the uh, sort of some of the mistakes that people do in terms of uh, uh, assessing outcomes actually that is very interesting question in the sense that uh, because as humans i mean see we came from a long evolutionary process which is primal right at the end we are all monkeys right so and all nature as you pointed out whether it is near normal or normal i mean 
most of the distributions follow the bell curve, right? Whether it is heights or, uh, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, and secondly, what happens is survival wise, uh, you, you, you know, you prepare for the mode, you prepare for the mean, right? You don't necessarily prepare for the tail. And which is why human civilizations have, you know, you have those cycles. They ebb, they grow, then they get wiped out because you're you don't normally. I mean, you expect things to be status quo, right? In in, in mathematical principles, you think everything is a martingale. Yep. Can you explain right. martingale for our uh, listeners? Sorry, not everybody comes. Yeah. So, so martingale is a funny mathematical process where the expectation is that for your future is you will be what you are right now, right? Expectation of X in any time in future is equal to X of zero, which is current time, right? It means that, and it also is one of the reasons why you have inequalities and all these things. It's, it, it, it goes very nicely and feeds into the situation because if somebody gets lucky and has done well, it is likely that that person will remain, you know, will continue to stay well. In fact, there's a certain amount of autocorrelation, but at least what it means is that people who have got lucky right? That luck stays with them. It doesn't get normalized, right? Whereas overall, you kind of expect that things should get normalized. It doesn't, right? So this is where that jump from be moving from a typical normal distribution where we think it's in a bell curve to somewhere where you are moving into a martingale where expectation of X is A, future X is now, to you have these long tail distributions. So where the whole translation comes is the more uh, fictitious the world is away from the nature where it's not exogenous variables, but it's an endogenous variables, right? Like I created economics because humans created a whole bunch of laws way by which we created an ecosystem under which we are all talking to each other, exchanging goods and services and all these things, right? Now that creates the phenomena which moves away. It's not normal, right? There are network effects. There are, uh, you know, one thing leads to the other. Like there is a superstar in a movie or a pop singer who becomes popular. Popular bring, brings in more popularity, right? We know that. It's equivalent to your old saying, rolling stone gathers uh, mass kind of a thing. Yeah, I know. I said it the other way around, but the, no, uh, the point. It, may, it makes sense. I think it's also there in the Bible, I think, that like, uh, and also like in a popular Govinda song, I think, where like, if you have a lot, you'll get more. But if you don't have anything, like you don't get much. So Exactly, right? So a lot in the ecosystem is uh, normalcy happens when there is what you call independent identical distribution, right? So the future event has to be independent of the current event. Then obviously you will have uh, that normal distribution which is coming in. But most of these things are you know, it, it, it is like you wanted, like your Govinda song. Just go, it's, it's a multiplicative effect, right? So people who are rich will get richer, even if they returns, like somebody who has one crore and somebody who has, let's say, one lakh, even if the one lakh guy generated 100% return, at the end of it, his net worth is two lakhs. And even if the one crore guy generated 5% return, it is five lakhs. The gap has only widened. It did not shrink, right? So it is this form. So in general, in life, uh, in finances, obviously slightly different, which we can talk later. But uh, there is deviation from your normal distribution because of these autocorrelative effects, because of these endowment effects. All these things will come into picture. And then 
you have your typical uh, network effects which come in right your youtube the popular guys will remain in fact technology if anything is only accentuating this thing so what it ends up is you have lots of these tail distributions right and in finance that is also true because what happens is imagine today stock market is there right stock market moves down 3% or 5% people will not panic but it goes down to 20% people will panic and that panic itself creates further panic yes yes right so there yes. is an acceleration effect which happens beyond a certain threshold right you, you know it, in your uh, olden day in physics when we were younger and we studied we had this pendulum swing where pendulum is pulled to the center but imagine that there is a where a pendulum where it goes to an extreme but that itself pushes it further before it comes back yeah i mean you can actually imagine that right like the sort of like the rope kind of bend, bending because of the momentum of the pend, pendulum or some something right which which you don't cover in your 10th uh, physics book so right so that is what creates these long tails right i mean whether you know and we have many distributions which talk about it right ranging from you know exponentials to poissons to all sorts of things which talk about this and in fact one of the first things that even when in finance you have options when they were priced they all assumed on normal distribution brownian motion and then you realize that okay if i do it that way things don't work but you don't adjust your model what you do is you introduce uh you know workarounds to say that you know that model is becomes stops being a model and starts becoming a language right and then you have in volatility the tails and you hedge the tails the tails are always more expensive than you know the volatility of the tails is higher so all those things come into place and uh, you know and and that's true we all would like to have like in general why do people now like startups right startup is nothing but a long tailed outcome where you know you suddenly have in fact even in coming back in finance like on one side you have hedge funds where they are trying to make a steady set of returns right so what they want is they want a narrower range of outcomes on a consistent basis and they believe that that compounding will carry on forward in contrast if you look at vcs what they are doing is that they are betting on long tails right they will bet on 10 companies and say that okay if one of them works and that generates 10x or 20x that's good enough yeah actually i was just thinking about it while you're explaining now if you think about it in real life most risks are sort of like uh, highly skewed risks so for example there's this risk that like you are driving from place a to place b there's a risk that you might meet with an accident or there is a risk there is a risk that whatever happens like there's an earthquake and your house collapses and you lose your house it's all like sort of and none of the and in some sense a lot of life which is life itself like you have one life which means that that's uh, uh, that is like sort of fundamentally unhedged right this that fundamentally unhedged so, and also on the on the upside on the upside you uh, in let's say you start a company that's a Uh, uh that's a sort of a right tailed kind of a uh, risk in a sense because like in the worst case you lose what you put in in the best case you make a lot more right so so i think like in that sense i think real life everywhere you look you think you you look at all these um, uh, sort of it's all long tail it's all tail risks on either side of the tail and that makes it fundamentally different from finance where like yes tail risk exists but it's small compared to the volatility or standard deviation uh, as you call it and before we sorry before we go ahead i think like we have sort of 
jumped a little ahead and so on from uh, so can we sort of like stop for a little bit and let's say uh, talk about things like uh, tail risk right tail left tail what is volatility what is uncertainty and so on and then we can sort of come back to uh, come back to this one sure see uh, i mean let me segue into that your question that you asked and start in this thing right so starting with it is i mean the most uh, intelligent quote that you would ever find from a politician is from the rumsfeld right you have known knowns known unknowns and unknown unknowns i mean it is something that you can use in any scenario anywhere and it would be valid right and it it it, it is uh, to to understand risk in some sense uh, you know it's a spectrum like known knowns will be something like uh tomorrow uh, sun will rise from the east it's a known nothing is going to change it right i mean sure a few billion years later that might not but it's a known known for us you know right a known unknown will be that i'm going to go i have to go to my office tomorrow but i don't know whether i will reach safely or whether i come back right there is a probability there is a uh, it is an adverse outcome can be there or something or i'm going to a casino and i'm playing blackjack right there's a probability of me winning or you know craps whichever way it is and then you have things like unknown unknown right which is what you would call as uncertainty so to speak and the reason why you have clubbed it as there is you didn't even know that this thing i mean uh, for example for all of us we can say that uh, sars covid was an unknown unknown right now it has become in fact if anything this kind of tells you that all these things are spectrums right there is really no watertight compartments covid was an unknown unknown to all of us except you know except maybe few people who wrote books on uh, uh, pandemics or who were doing research on it and so on similarly financial crisis was an unknown unknown for most normal people excepting to a few people in finance who actually watched it so here you can again see the distinction right so what is risk to one is in some sense an uncertain thing to the other so uh, let me stop you there uh, you said what is risk to one is uncertain to to the other so what is a, where where are you drawing the line between the risk and uncertain or is it a spectrum again it is a spectrum but very crudely speaking unknown unknown so something which is unmeasurable right and and uh, you, you know uh, or even not even known because if you don't know about it you can't even measure it right they follow in you know uncertain area risk broadly speaks about things that you have some idea some estimate and let, let again uh, taking the example in december 2000 no not december i should say in september 2019 uh sars covid was an unknown unknown for me by december 2019 it started moving for me from being an unknown unknown to a uh, you know known unknown like i knew of it i was positioned for it in january i mean for in in on a personal level like i started buying the sanitizers and cloth masks and 95s in january right on my portfolio in my fund i was positioned saying that okay things are going to be blowing up this china thing because that's when you saw china numbers and you know i was we were tracking that on a daily basis and it is there but for still most people it was not yep so i mean i remember i you know my first orders and i i spoke to people around i told the family and they were like what crazy thing are you talking about right and by march obviously everybody knew about it 
it started impacting our lives and so on so the obviously what i mean is i'm trying to draw the line at unknown and unmeasurable stuff and that is where i would call as uncertainty because even if you knew about it what on what on earth would you do right at somewhere it becomes measurable where you can take actions right and it and it then it becomes risk i mean to be honest i'll be very honest with you this risk and uncertainty and these things are terminologies like you know that elephant and the blind man story when I mean, things are different it's the same thing but different things to different people right but i'm just giving you my perspective of how i look at it yeah okay so uh, so you were uh, uh, so that brings us to like you were like uh, when you can measure something you said you can do something about risk and when you're talking about doing something about risk i think we'll uh, we can now talk about this concept that we know as hedging which is sort of like uh, sort of i don't know if you were to call it as eliminating risk i don't know if you were to call it as uh, sort of reducing risk or doing something to take care of your risk i think broadly we can uh, uh, we can define it that so can you talk about hedging and like uh, uh, again both i mean pretty much this is standard for every question i'm going to ask you today i need you to answer both from a uh, life perspective and a finance perspective i mean that is a very good concept right i mean inherently hedging is part of our life whether we knowingly or unknowingly we do it right but when you hedge before hedging is the other aspect right you have this concept which is expected value right because hedging is an outcome which is changing the expected so in a very crude way expected value is like the like outcome that you are hoping for, the outcome and then you have a range or a distribution of it based on which you are making a decision and hedging is a process which is essentially narrowing those uh, outcomes right i mean expected value i mean and to do that you need to first understand the principle of expected value first right and and the understand the concept that expected value Uh, the the same event has a different expected value to you to somebody else or even to you at two different points in time i mean taking an example uh, you, you know uh, where you, you it's a saturday evening and you want to go to your friends uh, you you know you could go uh, and watch a movie with your friends or you could stay back and watch a movie on netflix right and the expected value of these two is probably if you're an introvert you might prefer the latter if you're an extrovert you might prefer the former right so that's where the same event has two different things but independently the for the same person who might let's say call take an example of an extrovert person if imagine that the second event had it with his or her romantic interest right then the second one has more value right so your expected value inherently starts taking into account your utility functions your uh, you know if if we didn't have this dispersion in expected values you would not even have a functioning market i mean you are you have wrote between the buyers and sellers book right i mean the buyer and the seller have different value for the same asset otherwise there is no trade right of course yeah, i'm buying yes. a samsung phone because samsung values my cash more and i value the phone more exactly right yeah. right so now and uh, economics when they go into this and they say that this all agents are rational or uh, these things uh, it is true to some extent right but where they do a mistake is they kind of say that you know every average person and they take an average person and then you know uh, remember that in our junior days we used to get this you know what is f of uh, x and expectation of f of x and f of expected x yes right and these two would be functions which are not for some of them they would end up being true and some of them they are not 
right and that is and that and we make the simplification that it is actually true and that is where most of the problem is uh, comes in right we have these laws and you know taking the adverse situation right my law my utility function from committing a crime uh, is different from a psychopath's utility function from committing a crime i'm more scared about uh, uh, you know being imprisoned and suffering the adverse consequences than let's say a person who takes pride out of it and yeah. therefore the deterrent for that person is very substantially different right and this kind of we can talk about it later but this kind of goes into the fact that why a uniform policy that you have will not be good enough to the say apply as a deterrent for everyone right so now for me my actions is i'm now going to narrow these outcomes right i want to reduce the, like if i want to go to a movie i want to go to a movie which i think i will enjoy right i'm unlikely to take you know uh, being let's say not a uh, artsy kind of a person i'm probably going to go to a generic movie which is likely to have a moderate range right whereas let's say that the art movies tend to have a wider range of outcomes where one of them to be either extremely good or it can completely go over my head and i won't even understand so that naturally means that i'll go end up going to a artsy movie uh, not a artsy movie but to a normal movie right so hedging is nothing but you are trying to reduce the range of outcomes so that you have greater assurance that you will not and it feeds into the point that our utility functions are unfortunately not linear right the negative reaction the pain hurts us more than the joy actually this utility function reminds me of like i think i mean i've also in some of my past lives i've done some work on utility functions and using that to construct portfolios and things like that but it reminds me of a, a behavioral economists who kind of like once i had drawn a utility function it was very hard for me to sort of think about it uh, what is what is behavioral economics saying because see fundamentally utility function is like x axis is how much you have let's say income or wealth or returns or whatever y axis is the utility and we know that it's a sort of a the uh, it's an increasing function but increases with a uh, negative diminishing slope right so i, I don't know if it's convex or concave i think it's uh, uh, like I, that's something i've never understood so based on this which means that if i have 100 rupees if i lose 10 bucks then i'm going to uh, uh, feel a lot more pain than i would if i were to gain 10 bucks starting from 100 right and that's a it's a sort of fundamental uh, sort of sort of everybody has i mean i may not have like the exact shape of the utility for uh, curve for me might be different from it is for you but but the fundamental the nature of the curve that it's an increasing function that it's non decreasing and that the slope is or uh, decreasing i think that's true for, true out of everyone right that is true for everyone absolutely i think i mean there are very few instances where this would not be like i mean other than compulsive gamblers and few other areas i think in general it is true uh but again this is where uh, you know this is where actually the good aspect of risk management that you mentioned whether in real life or whether in financial market comes in because net net utility function the way we learn in economics is like a simple single dimensional axis but risk overall is like a multi dimensional things in many ways right for example if i were to be sick and i needed money money right now the sickness is defining and the utility for money is far greater 
because it has a long term impact on my survival right whereas if you are a guy who is like happily sitting on let's say some surplus cash flow right that 50000 rupees that let's say your, your your driver who is sick and who asked you and whereas for you who is like does is marginal uh, you know which is probably going to be in your bank and earning a 4% on fd right Th- that is the value that it has so substantial you know the same thing can have substantial both of you have a similar utility function but because you are in a different on different dimensions whether it is in time or objectives or etc uh, the same object gives you different utilities and this is where risk management happens right so we all have left tails in real life right we are all scared we buy houses we buy we have jobs we are worried about our families uh, not all of us always have uh, dual employments or not all of us even jobs which give you guaranteed secure employment like there is a reason why government jobs get you know you know even for a government job of a sweeper you would find one is to thousand kind of applicants or one is to 10000 applicants right because there is certain security that comes with a government job with a pension and all those things right in some sense that is like the risk free rate it's like a risk free job right and uh, yeah so coming back you, you know so that this multiple di- uh, you know rigidity that helps you in diversify you can actually transfer risk from one person to the other person and we people have in finances let's say that i am a guy who has i mean as a trader i mean i used to trade options and derivatives in general i don't manage delta risk i am always delta hedged right which means that i do not care about the direction of the underlying asset most of the risk which i would manage was either volatility risk and correlations risk that is a risk that i was comfortable with and i would manage that right but i was transferring the delta risk to my spot desk who is comfortable managing it right so in some sense our utility functions are different and we are able to transfer in real life insurance is like that all of us have loans all of us have med- uh, health in issues and liabilities which we have we take long term liabilities you know in hope that we all live long and we will all prosper and etc but as you said right we only have one life and in fact uh, it's a very different problem i'm whether if this is right avenue or not is ergodicity but we all have one life and we are very scared about it so you kind of need to hedge that aspect of it right so if you take a housing loan of about a crore and your income is about 15 lakhs per annum you want to make sure that if something to untowards happen to you tomorrow that loan burden doesn't f- come back and bite your family so you take an insurance right and why is it because the insurance person you know for him it's a different risk altogether he is taking your risk and converting so this is where your original problem right people are able to convert risk from one type to the other type right and we pay because it's a left tail risk despite its expected value let's say is low probability and is only about 1000 or 10000 right we end up paying 20000 because we are so risk averse and we it's the adverse event will hurt us so much more right all of us have spent all our money i mean we the best event on risk is happening right now is covid right i mean we don't trade on probabilities we throw we trade on our fear of the probabilities yes 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 so yeah so th- that's 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 essentially how risk management works and hedging works which is you want to keep those things that you are comfortable managing and you do not want those things which are in finance obviously because you measure it 
uh, even in finance, there are lots of unmeasurable stuff. And you will see very frequently that despite the claims of finance industry, they always surprised, right? And the reason being that none of the, them are good enough to understand the second, third, fourth order effects. And these systems, like I mentioned earlier, right? The tailed systems are those where the second and third order effects are. And again, talking about utility functions and because they sort of flatten out, I think uh, insurance is, of course, one of one of the made that the rate of returns on insurance is low is one of the things, one of the outcomes of like, uh, let's say, our flattening utility uh, functions. One of the other things is that like, uh, if you have a certain event and an uncertain, if you have a certain payoff and an uncertain payoff and the two have the same expected value. You will be willing right. to pay more for the certain payoff or for the more certain payoff than for the uncertain payoff. So in some sense, I guess one thing that we have sort of, all of us have internalized is that when there is risk, you need to just be compensated for the existence. To take on a risk, you need to be compensated just for the existence of the risk. Absolutely. No, that 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 is absolutely true, right? Imagine you had a job offer, right? from a multinational company, which probably is paying you X. And uh, second one is you have a job offer from a startup, which probably is paying you less than X. And in the multinational companies, you have your standard utilities and you know fringe benefits, corporate benefits, good lifestyle, et cetera. You, the, the whole ESOP structure is created to make that happen so that the in reality, the expected value of salary from the overall uh, or at least perceived expected value because we never know what is true expected value anyway, right? The perceived expected value from your standard company is X and the Y that you get from your startup, Y has to be greater than X. Otherwise you wouldn't even consider it, right? It is a different thing that a more risk averse person will need far much higher Y than let's say you who might be less risk averse. Right? Which is why you would see all people in startups end up being those risk-taking people. It's a natural outcome. And which is why organizations which are slow moving and sturdy, there isn't, it's like birds of a feather flock together, right? So there is a natural outcome of each person's utility functions. Whether we realize it or not, it inherently is what happens. Yeah. So I guess it's like not only does risk have a price, but the price of risk is different for different people. And, and it varies from risk to risk. I mean, risk of income has one price for somebody. Uh, risk of something else, like, I, I don't know, like uh, uh, stock market, uh, return on investments will have different price for different people and, uh, and uh, so on, I guess. So I, I know that you're a gamer. You're a massive gamer. I know you pretty much spent most of your college life uh, gaming and so on. And I think there are some games which are like, I mean, we had another episode a couple of uh, months back where we had... Uh, uh, this guy, uh, Rahul Raghavan, who runs a Montessori school, who spoke about how one of the ways in which you can introduce uh, analytics to young kids is by introducing them to games. He was like, uh, one of the statements he said in the podcast is that blackjack is absolutely compulsory for six-year-olds. So, <laughs> so let's I, talk, I agree to that. Let's talk. I know that like, I mean, like you also like um, uh, sort of, I know you play uh, bridge. I don't know if you play... Uh, uh, poker and so on, but let's talk about games and the risk in them, what we can learn about risk from games and what is the limits of uh, what we can learn from like toy situations such as games. You know, I mean, I, the point that your, uh, uh, you know, the previous podcaster has just mentioned in terms of uh, 
risk and understanding games, it's actually bang on. And it is, see, I mean, it, it's not just, I mean, I'm going to take a little detour. Uh, you know that all our body has uh, chemicals, right? And we, we, I mean, we have different chemicals for different things, your serotonin, oxytocin, and during stress, I forget the name of the stress hormone right now, but it, it starts with... Dopamine, uh, serotonin, oxytocin, and... Uh, uh, the uh, bad one is... The, the bad uh, one is... Uh, 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 the, uh, something for, uh, it's not adrenaline, but it comes from the same region. I no, no, no. It. It's 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 this thing. Yeah. So there is a stress hormone. I think it starts with K. I just can't. It's at the tip of the tongue, but I can't remember. Right. So what typically happens is your flight or fight instincts uh, are generate these stress hormones. And the point is, uh, imagine that uh, in mother's womb, there is a reason why they say that mother has to be taken care of well, they should not get stressed and so on. Because what typically happens is when the stress hormone, when it gets produced, the babies, it adapts to a certain level as a base and that starts hurting in future. So inherently, all of us, we don't like uncertainty. When there is uncertainty, when there is a lot of, you know, things, there is chaos. I mean, which is why, you, I mean, there is this word, right? We get stressed, right? Stress is triggered by anxiety, uncertainty, and all these things. And the ability to handle stress is not uniform amongst all individuals. It is a very wide divergent things, right? Which is also leads to the things why some of us, you know, depression hits someone, the same event makes somebody depressed, whereas somebody not. And there's also lack of understanding. All these things fit together. And in some sense, introducing your kids to uncertainty at a younger age is like a vaccination, right? You should think of it in that fashion. Right. Imagine if, if, if your child grew up in a Suraj Barjatya style household where everything was sing song and dance and party, the chances that an adverse outcome can completely topple the child, the chances increase. Right. And you and I, we had friends whom we lost because of such outcomes. Right. I mean, I mean, in fact, that is the one where we know that is a specific group of people. And we have spoken, you know, many times outside, you know, about this event, so say. So, finding uncertainty, introducing games which have uncertainty, I feel is a way of vaccination. Games by themselves are good, right? Unless a game is what I call a complete information game, right? Which is things like chess, where yeah. you can actually compute. But even chess does not become complete information for a child because he's not a computer. He's not a computer, right? A, so she. The amount of information is very large. So he's very large for them. So it, for all practical purposes, it can be considered uh, incomplete information, right? Uh, because you can't guess and so on and so forth. But the point is, all these games help you to handle uncertainty because you. We're all taught, especially in your moral science and other things, do good, good will come back to you, and everything is almost like a definitive statement. We are not handled probabilities. The fact that if I say that tomorrow in an election, some party is going to win 300 seats, you know, if it is greater than 300, you are proven wrong. If it is less than 300, you are proven wrong. I mean, you are an election forecaster, so I'm sure you got these feedbacks, right? And the, what people don't understand is there's a difference between talking about the mean and talking about the outcomes. And expecting that doing the same thing will lead to result the same actions again uh, is something that you would want your child to not, you know, it's actually risk management for a longer life.
to introduce them to that concept, right? Because a natural world is you cycle fast, the cycle goes faster. You break, it, it's consistent. Most of the world, we mechanical world that we live in and interact with on a day-to-day -day basis has removed. Like imagine uh, financial markets, right? We consider somebody who is right 60% of the time to be you know, generating awesome results. Now imagine if your car starts 60% of the time, would you even own that car? Right. So there is a huge expectation difference on what we think on a day-to-day -day basis, what we think versus this thing. And that, that and because we are so used to certainty, we kind of think that the same actions should repeat. And especially this happens with human interactions and human this thing, and overall in events, you know, the things like your butterfly effects and all sorts of things, which bring back uh, the uncertainty. So games. I think which have uncertainty are absolute. Even starting from your snakes and ladders, right? They are good because there's no like not. It's not like it is luck, and you're not. Most people currently focus on chess and other things which have skill, but actually it is not skill. I think that is more important. You want to go for. It's not efficiency that you should aim for in childhood, especially. You should aim for robustness, and that is risk management, right? Robustness is nothing but your ability to handle risk well. Right? Actually, we currently are suffering from COVID because we've been trying to be too efficient. Yes. It's yeah. bad risk management. Yeah, like, uh, I mean, uh, every day you see in the paper that some automotive manufacturers is slowing down because like of the chip shortage. And that's because of, of the just-in-time over the last 100 years, right? Like, if we had more stocks, if we were more fat in some sense, you'd have a lot res less risk and be a lot more robust. So one of the things you told about how like by introducing some risk to kids early, you sort of inoculate them against risk, right? So I'm reminded of this line from, it's from one of Taleb's books. Uh, I don't know which one it is. Uh, it's possibly Black Swan, where he says the countries where I would least expect a political crisis or a coup or something are countries like India and Italy and some other places he mentions. Because these are countries which have like, uh, you have elections, you have high political instability all the time. And because you have high political instability, it means that you are like sort of you have a lot of short-term volatility, which means that you are sort of hedged against like big changes. Another example of this is I used to ride a motorcycle. I used to have a Royal Enfield, and I had gone on a tour to Rajasthan in 2012. And there we were taught how to motorcycle on sand. And what the uh, Enfield guys told us is that you should always hold a, a bike loosely. You should never grip it too tightly and let it wobble a bit. If it wobbles a bit, you know how much it can wobble and it, it won't wobble enough for you to fall. Correct. Absolutely. Right. What you are doing is it, you are converting things, moving things from unknown unknowns to known unknowns. Right. And if you have known unknowns, hopefully your robustness in handling these things matter. Like that is why I like it and games like games like uh, on an investment side. So that is on real life, right? In real life, I think people should introduce blackjack is a perfect example. I think that is simplest and most elegant game that you would do. I like slightly complex games. And, you know, you know, for example, Seven Wonders is a good game where there is a certain amount of randomness. And, you know, I play it with, with my kid and, and it's beautiful and they get excited and, and, and so on. But I think blackjack, I mean, that, that, that's a beautiful example, right? And the emphasis on things like chess, I would, if anything, I would argue should be lesser than compared to these blackjacks. I mean, you should play chess. That's a skill game. But overall, you want more and more 
of these uh, things. And that, there's also a certain difference, right? Now, coming back to the other hat that you asked me to join, which is on a financial hat, right? So there are two kinds of games, right? One is uh, what I would call, I'll classify as poker. And the other one is I would call as uh, uh, bridge, right? In a poker, yeah, sure, you have an edge if you know certain things, you can keep your counts and so on. But a lot of edge comes from behavioral patterns, right? Your ability. So th there is a significant role of individual and individual's personality, which comes into play in, in that game. Bridge, on the other hand, especially your duplicate bridge that, uh, you know, we all used to play, uh, you know, it, it's a different. There, there are opposites. So you have more method. So there is a method to the madness, right? You're trying to be consistent. You're trying to replicate, you know, uncertainty, but you're trying to replicate a certain process over a longer period of time. And you think that overall that narrows the outcomes, right? So again, they will meet, there is a midway, it's a spectrum. It is not uniform, but on the right-hand side in bridge is what I would call more an investing style. And the left-hand side is what I would call more uh, trading style. And, you know, it actually feeds into that I've seen historically uh, in, in my experience, like most of the traders whom I would not, uh, you, you know, who know the things well, the traders are those people who actually know their behavior well and behavior of the other people around them. They know the behavior of the markets. Like they trade by gut, right? And on the right-hand side, you have quants who, sure, there is obviously a basis in everything, but there, you know, your renaissance and all those things ranging from quants all the way. What you're doing is you, I like, as a quant, I like more trades. In fact, I like short-term trades, more trades, because then I'm moving back my distribution and narrowing the outcomes, right? So that's the investment hat on the games end. But playing uncertain, incomplete information games where the same sequence of events don't lead to same outcome. I think for the kids, it's it must. So actually, uh, this sparks multiple thoughts for me, actually. One thing where, when you spoke about uh, traders and quants being partial to bridge or poker, I'm reminded of the story, again, going back to the weekend of 13th, 14th September 2008, where apparently they were trying to uh, contact Bob Diamond, I think, who was the CEO of Barclays. And he couldn't take the call of the other bankers because he was busy playing bridge. That's the story in Too Big to Fail. And, uh, yeah. and also, like in some way, like in bridge, the uncertainty that you deal with is the uncertainty with the of the lay of the cards. Once the cards have been laid, irrespective of who your opponent is, I mean, some might like to finish more than the others, some might like to play for something else, but more or less you're playing the board rather than playing your opponents. While in poker, I guess you're playing your opponents far more than you're playing the lay of the cards. Absolutely. That, that, that is true, right? I mean, also the number of cards, like in a bridge, all 52 cards are on the deck. Right. Are on the so table. you have it and you pay or on the, yeah, or on the table. Right. And also, I mean, you know, that the bridge rule timings, right. A typical bridge games takes about seven minutes and they say that the first three minutes will probably be spent in bidding. And then they, they say that, you know, once the lead happens and the dummy comes down, that is when the declarer needs supposed to think. Yes. And that is when a maximum amount of time is allowed for everybody because everybody is thinking. But afterwards, in a professional, you know, the cards, the next four, 13 cards which go happen in a jiffy, right? And you also decide. It's not like in bridge, you always pay the probability. In fact, we are taught that in bridge, you play to win, 
right? Even if it is a low probability, there is a one way to play. You just play that because you're playing to win. But Actually, that I'll is substantially you stop you here because you lead me to this other concept, which is of what I call as finite and infinite games. It's a beautiful book, by the way, written by a guy named James Cars. He was a theologian, I think, at Harvard. Uh, uh, and it's, it's a short book, but a beautiful book. So uh, basically, the concept is what the title suggests. There's a finite game, there's an infinite game. In a finite game, you're, uh, you only kept, you're playing games one at a time. All that matters is for you to win the game. In an infinite game, the objective of the game is to just continue to play. So in some sense, in uh, bridge, for example, even if I, I don't know, like even if I, uh, let's say we are playing a, a sort of a pairs event or something, even if I go seven down or whatever, it doesn't matter. I start the next hand at zero. While in poker, if I lose all my money now, I can't play the next time. So it's a sort of an infinite game in that sense, right? It is. In fact, that's why you change the way you play bridges. The, you know, the Swiss pairs versus duplicate. You play slightly differently, right? The risk of going five down is much bigger in imps in, uh, you know, in duplicate bridge. And exactly. it will hurt you. Whereas, you know, my 14th rank, if I'm, let's say, 14 pairs, the 14th rank will be 14th rank. And, you know, there's a difference in pairs and there's also, you know, where there's a common board against which you are compared. So that influences, right? That your playing strategy changes based on the game. And the finite and infinite actually works very well. And it is a fundamental aspect in fund management where if you don't, no matter, I mean, imagine that I have two returns. One is uh, minus 100% and a second is a plus 100%. And in contrast, let's say I have a plus 10% and a minus 10%. Arithmetically, both of them yield the same. But geometrically, it is zero because it doesn't really matter. You, you're dead in one case. So a lot of fund management goes into the first. In fact, hedge funds in some sense uh, originally were like, you got to have that survival thing first before, you know, if you're alive, you can eat another day, right? You don't need yes. a, a feast every day. First thing, rule of any game is to survive. Now, you have finite games and you have infinite games. And let's say ignore agency conflict and all those things. Uh, and suddenly, you'll find that fund management and all those things, which are you know multiplicative in nature, you would find that these are uh, you know where you have defensive because you want to survive and you don't just play to win. But now, Contrast that with uh, agency conflict comes in where in a hedge fund or in any bank where the guy, his downside is limited to the salary that he has been paid, right? Earlier, even that was not the case. They would not, there were no clawbacks, but currently there are clawbacks, right? So you're just saying, so what they would do is they would take enormous amount of risk because inherently what they would convert is they would convert this into a, an infinite set of finite games because you have a job, you would go, you would play, you would play to win. If it doesn't, you get fired, you go find another job. So you are just sequentially buying options, which is good for you, right? And that's how you make money. You are effectively gaming the system by converting what appears to be, a, you, you know, a finite, not necessarily an infinite game. You're converting it into a bunch of finite, infinite game, or rather infinite, finite games, and, you know, grabbing value. That is how most of the money was made in finance from, let's say, 1990s all the way till 2010s, even probably now a little, even 2020s. Yeah, so one of the other things I was just thinking about, I, I keep thinking about risk and logical fallacies, right? Sometimes I think I think one of the things that we as humans sort of don't do very well is to 
in a lot of cases is to assess the risk some of the times we sort of sort of like we use small samples they once i went uh, once i invested in the stock market and i lost 10% of my money so i'm never investing in the stock market again you you look at small samples you look at selection bias you look at all these logical fallacies so i was thinking in the context of our recent discussion on uh, finite and infinite games uh, movies do a pretty bad job of teaching us risk because most movies by definition are finite games the whatever the plot of the movies let's say it's like maybe the hero is in trouble the plot of the movie is for him to get out of trouble by the end of the movie there's a finite game for this it finish which he needs to get out of so which means that you take all sorts of risk and you do all sorts of sort of heroic things and stuff and you get out but what they don't tell you is the what happens next i mean unless there's a sequel of course but it's a in that sense movies don't do a good job of teaching you risk correct movies absolutely not i mean movies will teach you that uh, romance is probably one of the most beautiful things in the world but what they don't tell you is i mean other than a few where there is a certain amount of uh, friction which always exists you know no matter what between any two people friction happens comes but in movies you won't even believe that that happens right or they make you believe that there is one hero who will come and you know we like to imagine see there is originally or anywhere stories movies they're all meant to be exaggerations right but what we mistake is often uh, exaggerations create a certain amount frequency of that makes it kind of normalizes things right it it is your most common thing other way thing is right imagine the very widely used quote man bites dog versus dog bites man right now if imagine if i sample if somebody samples all the newspapers historically they would find that most of the news would always uh, will be bad news right or will be man biting dog and somebody will not get a real distribution of how often dogs bite man and the simple reason is that they are not meant to give you information they are meant to trigger some reactions in you right they are meant to trigger your interest we confuse them for being providing information and being representative of a real world which they are not yeah and actually this gets worse with social media because at least the a newspaper which is why i sort of off late rely on broadsheet newspapers to get my news rather than social media because they at least they, they give you a distribution they talk about everything that's happening in the world yeah they might be on average negative but overall it's hedged but if you go to social media there'll be one topic of the day and like you think that's the most important thing in the world today and tomorrow it'll be something else exactly right so it completely distorts your perception right which is all the more important that you do not get uh, it is very important and you know the biggest challenge in risk management is actually not managing risk it is in knowing that you have risk that is the fundamental and most basic thing which most people i mean even in people who are supposedly professional risk managers they would always tend to get short sighted and you know because things like it is the second third multi order effects which come back like the algos when social media was invented it was invented for something then it became something it is aimed to gather clicks it is aimed to gather certain and we will see the impact of on the kids generation and all that the attention span decay which you will find right it's 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 all uh, will come to us in some years down the line now there are some good things about it obviously without that they will not be but there are, again when we speak of risk in real world we normally talk about the downsides not about the upsides right uh, so that that is definitely right so these are all fallacies the fallacy of you observing and thinking that you are a representative 
right? I mean, I once tweeted about this angle, right? I would be a bad equity analyst because I mean, one of the standard ways is, you, you know, you want to find what people will consume, what people will, uh, this thing, etc. And I mean, you know me and, you know, me, so uh, you know that as a people, we generally don't, right? There is very little that you would want. And you would, fallacy is that you think most of the people in the world are like you. And like, imagine when I started, Facebook was listed and I saw it fall. I said, it is true because I would never spend my time on Facebook. I still don't spend my time on Facebook, but that's a good stock to buy <laughs> because a lot of people who do that. So using yourself as a representative sample of the world, using your, you know, that your experience is somehow uh, is the ensemble experience. And I think we should really talk about ergodicity after when we use the word ensemble, is these are all the standard things that we do in risks. And these are the things we do, mistakes, and then therefore the ability to manage risk completely, uh, you know, goes haywire. Okay, right. Now, ergodicity is actually a principle which is, I mean, it's a, it's a complex thing, right? It is, again, it is you're talking about about f of expectation of x versus expectation of f of x. Now just add one more element called time into it, right? And understanding ergodicity, really, if you once you understand it, it it is a brilliant concept and it tells you how, why, and how can risk be managed and risk be transformed and so on. I mean, the most obvious example I will take is as follows: Imagine that uh, there is a, some game happening in a carnival where they are playing Russian roulette and, uh, uh, you know, they're giving two dollars, they'll take one dollars for a bet and two dollars if you come back alive, right? Then you get two dollars if you come back alive. Now, uh, if I had a clone army, like I'm the Star Wars guy and I had a clone army, all I would do is I would keep like every instance round, let's call it six is equal to one round. And every instance I would send six people go, each of them I'll give $1, five of them will come back and I will get $10. So I'm making a $4 profit and I would repeat this ad infinitum, right? So if you ask me what is my expected profit in one round, it is $4, right? My long-term expected value is infinity because I have a clone army and I can keep doing this forever, right? Now change the equation. I'm not in Star Wars world and it's just me. Now you ask me if I will go and do it. The answer is no. Why? Your long-term expected value is zero. After six shots, you even if your luck favors, and but sixth shot, you're going to die, right? So once you die, it doesn't matter what your money is. You're, it's, it's zero. So the point is the time average for a single person is different from the ensemble average, right? Which is a cross-sectional average. And it is this difference, which is what you would call like my experience on time is very different from a cross-sections experience and the utility functions and all these things, right? And coming back to the original point, we have only one life. If we have one life, the value of that life is immense for us. For the insurance company, you and I are same as any Tom, Dick and Harry in any part of the world. Sure, they have some correlations between based on some geographies and health lifestyles and so on, but otherwise, what you're doing by buying insurance is you are converting your time average risk and translating it into an ensemble average risk for somebody else. Well, great. So now uh, I think one of the ways in which I think people try to manage this, I think, right, is to kind of start having, uh, I mean, typically when you want to manage something, they say that you cannot manage something that you cannot measure. 
right? So you start measuring it, and then you come up with certain metrics. So uh, to, for the lack of a better term, and with all puns intended, let's call it risk metrics. Okay, which is uh, I think uh, I think it was initially started at J.P. Morgan in the mid '90s, and then it was spun off as a separate company, which introduced this co uh, concept of VAR, that is value at risk, which is that what is the maximum amount of money that I can lose in the left five uh, percent of the time or something? It is something like that, right? So, can you talk about risk metrics in a generic term and in the uh, con concept of VAR and what happens when you have metrics like this to measure risk? No, this is actually one of my favorite topics in the sense that when people and risk and they start talking about it and, you know, in the fund, we get these, we need to present to our investors and clients. And, you know, I take pains to say that these metrics, while they are visible, is actually not our key things. The key metrics in our fund is various other things like, you know, we have to manage liquidity, we have to manage uh, regulatory you, which not necessarily do not have a quantifiable things, but there is a great fascination about measuring things, which is good. I mean, there is a logic merit behind it, but what typically happens is once you measure something, you also get comfort with something. And once you get comfort, you then think that the measure is be all and end all. You know, it's one of my favorite laws, which is that Goodhart's law, right? Which is once you see what gets measured starts getting managed. And it also starts influencing your behavior. Value at risk, the way it is measured is very simple. It is like you take your portfolio, either you run Monte Carlo simulations or you run uh, historical simulations or you use implied volatilities. There are many ways to slice the bread, right? So, but uh, what they do is, you know, they say that, okay, 95% VAR, what is the downside risk that happens once in 20 days? And you want to have that as a measure because that in some sense gives you, okay, if that measure is increasing, it means you are taking greater risk. And that is correct. And it's, it, it's a good metric in that fashion. Now, what typically happens is uh, you think that 95 measure, then you think that that is somewhere it gets normalized then people, you, you don't uh, realize that actually that means that it is probably the minima in some sense, right? It also assumes that there is a normal distribution, right? So sometimes what would happen is your 95% VAR gets hit in three consecutive days. And then your people are like, it is supposed to happen one in 20 days. I mean, why exactly once a month, you know, why are we having three kind of things? But that's not, the, 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 so that is where from your having a metric, not understanding the metric and the limitations of it comes into place, right? And so that is the single biggest challenge. I mean, whether it falls in the fallacy of under, you know, or whether it is an understanding, lack of understanding, whichever way it is. So you have these metrics and you don't. And then you realize post an event that this VAR by itself is ridiculous or not useful, right? And it's actually not the problem of VAR. VAR is doing what it is supposed to. It is you who didn't understand what were its limitations, right? It is coming back to the quants. You need to know as a model, when a model, so when somebody gives me, I mean, we do have internal quants and we do model building. And one of the first questions I ask is not, what are the returns and what are these things? I ask, when will you fail, right? So uh, remember our favorite uh, XKCD comic, right? Which is you stir enough data and then you get the results that you want. So there are two kinds of modeling, right? One is you stir the data and then you get a result. 
Second is you have an hypothesis and then you build a model and you get a result, right? Uh, the first one is a random weird things, but algos use that. So typically you want to have risk metrics which compensate for it, which is those algos which are data driven, you want them to be high sharp, right? So high frequency quant algos will have high sharp because high sharp is essentially saying that I have low volatility and higher returns. So I'm getting better risk adjusted return, but it is not really better risk adjusted return. It is like, because the way risk is measured is volatility and volatility is measured in short term duration, which by itself will not capture tails. You know that standard deviation is good only for a normal distribution, right? I mean, you have distributions which don't even have standard deviation. Exactly. Right. So uh, to compensate for that, in some sense, it has become like a proxy black shoals where it becomes a language. Your sharp becomes a language rather than a metric by itself. So if there is a high frequency quant where I don't know when it doesn't work and it has been driven by data, I want a high sharp. I want a maybe three or a six, depends on different methods and logic, but you want that. And the reason is effectively, you know that there is a hidden risk that you are not measuring and it will break down, it will cost you money, and you want a compensation for that. In contrast, let's imagine that there is a model driven, like a Bridgewater or uh, you know, you know, other people who build this. There, there is a certain element of robustness which comes in. The models will fail. Inherently, you know that these are the things which don't work. It already has high wall. In some sense, high wall is a measure of robustness, if you see the difference over there. Right. So it's, it's ironical, but in some sense, it is a measure of robustness. You would think that because it is high wall, you would have seen all possible scenarios and because it is model driven or whatever it is. And therefore you will have a lower sharp threshold for those things. Right. We all invest in equities and equities have a sharp ranging from 0.5 to 0.8. Right. Whereas if I were to invest in a hedge fund, I probably would demand a much higher sharp because there is an unknown risk element over there. Right. In equities, it's visible. It's this thing and so on. You're talking about un unknown risks. Now we started talking about the 2008 financial crisis uh, because you were sort of involved in it in some sense, like uh, you were on the floor then. But putting those two together soon after the crisis, I remember one, one of the popular magazines, either Vanity Fair or Wired or someone, they published an article called the formula that brought down Wall Street. And this was something called the Gaussian copula or something. This was, and this brings me to this concept of correlation, which I think we have not spoken about. So, because I think what happened then was that like, I think uh, the Gaussian copula had, had been used to sort of like, uh, in some way, quantify correlations between different assets. And then the regime changed, the correlations changed, and that led to the failure of a lot of uh, models and uh, things like that. So, can we talk a little bit about? Uh, a correlation, I mean, uh, this is a tricky topic. I mean, it is also not necessarily so I don't know how deep in depth we want to go here. But uh, see, effectively, everything is about modeling, in especially in financial things. There is a behavior, there is a pattern that you want to model. In subprime crisis, you had you were packaging securities together, you're saying that the securities uh, behavior will behave in certain fashion. So already there is a, this thing, uh, collateralization and giving cash flows. And then you have an, another package where you were putting on top of it. So what you're doing is copulous, as you know, I mean, again, for this thing is our functions, you know, correlation functions between two variables, right? But now 
they are in some sense normalized gaussian copulas are simple functions right yeah. what they don't have is they don't take into account they, they are in some sense there's a randomized correlation function right with the normal distribution and blah 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 but what typically happens is again this is where understanding the principles right when initially when you spoke about how do i understand tailed distributions tailed distributions are best understood in understand from figuring out are there autocorrelative effects are there networked effects right whether it is from the vc world or an fa you know financial world or whatever it is you need to understand that correlation has a skew like how volatility has a skew or volatility is you know considered heteroscedastic and you know it is autocorrelative in nature low wall brings low wall and high volatility brings high volatility right there is a correlation effect involved similarly correlation or the, the, the correlation also has a skew when so called risk assets they all tend to go down together is it logical probably not but does it happen the answer is yes right so imagine uh, to give you an idea i mean we priced options we i and lehman and barclays i used to trade this multi currency options right if a multi currency option had strikes which are what are called at the money which is current spot level the correlations are different right they are x like dollar if imagine that i'm doing dollar dollar against rupee dollar against china as an simpler example right now in current benign environment world you would think that china and india slightly yes they are emerging markets therefore they are correlated but they are not so correlated that there is a slightly you know it's like a dog and a drunkard with a positive 20% correlation right uh that kind of a behavior is what you would expect and you would price but if somebody says that i want to price an option between dollar china at 7 and dollar rupee at 80 together right if i use today's correlation i am massively underpricing it because if china goes to 7 dollar china goes to 7 it is very likely that dollar rupee will be at 80 so conditionality right i mean we never spoke about this bayesian thing so in all these things so there is a conditional probabilities conditional correlations all these things come into place and we all model things based on it's it, it's like you know i have a hammer i need to find a tool or i have only this skill set and therefore this i need to find a nail right sorry uh, i need to have a hammer and i need to find a nail so that is your challenge and you don't price that correlation skew because you didn't have tools about it or you didn't even think about it right and it is that what causes models to collapse it is that which causes our risk see which is what even in real life it happens right and they say it in hindi right upar wala jab deta hai chappad phad ke deta hai which is essentially when it rains it pours you know in the other direction when you are in crisis you would find that you always get more and more things which accentuate that crisis right it happens it happens not because that you didn't know of the distribution or anything it happens because the pain the aspect all those things they're all linked together right it is a natural phenomenon and it is this which causes always the pain to wall street and you know even in real life even for us it causes and it is this avoidance of this worst case where you know which causes makes us all to be defensive which is what in some sense uh, we are all when market falls 20% we see a 40% it actually might make sense to invest at 20% correction but we are all worried about 40% right so our primal brain you know the fight or flight reactions they all trigger which is why you would want your money to be managed 
ideally, I mean, by in a systematic or methodical fashion where there are behavioral anomalies that you can overcome, right? And I mean, you know as well, I mean, we spoke about it many times, uh, but uh, that's the, I mean, that's the broader principle about not being able to see how correlation itself has a smile, causes problems and brings things, may, brings down things. Yeah, and I think uh, as you rightly mentioned, it has a, I mean, forget uh, financial markets. I think even in real life, a lot of things are like, a uh, lot of our uh, risks have to do with correlations and with correlations with change and you kind of like, uh, um, uh, uh, and when they change, you don't know how to handle it and then you sort of get into exactly. trouble and so on. Okay. And we use current expectations to risk the correlations, right? Like today you are having good times. Today you are having, uh, your job is not related to your stock market, right? You think both of them are independent. But what we do not know inherently is the probability of you getting fired increases as your stock market portfolio goes down. So there's a positive correlation or negative correlation, whichever way you want to think is there. And you kind of have to manage it, which is why when, if you had a good financial advisor, in fact, you know, one of the things is if you have a financial advisor, ideally you should hate him or her, right? Because it's like his, that person is supposed to be like a doctor making you to go on a diet, making you to do things which you don't like, like put, force you to take insurance, which will never see any value. It's a money down the drain, force you to take medical insurance or force you to keep like one or, you know, two years of capital just so that you survive, right? Now you will see that capital and you would think that, oh, if I put that money last year in stock market, this year it would have doubled, right? So you should hate that financial advisor, but ideally your financial advisor is supposed to be uh, protecting you from these correlation tails, a correlation skew, if you really have a good one. Obviously agency conflicts come into picture. That's a different thing, but if you have a truly good one. That's what that person is supposed to do. Awesome. Okay. This has been a fascinating conversation. I think we've been talking for a, a long time now. And now as a closing question, right? Like, I mean, like, let's say you're a young person who's for whatever reason interested in the risk. Let's say you've, you've mastered blackjack at six, poker at nine, at 12 and so on. Like, uh, and you think you're a, you're very good at risk, understanding risk and so on. Like uh, now after the global financial crisis, I guess the overall financial industry, which is what kind of mostly hosted the risk professionals that's sort of like, uh, uh, diminishing now. So if you are, if you want to make a career in risk, what should you do? So there are broadly two ways in looking at risk. One is you can be a risk professional yourself, right? Where all organizations legally compliance wise, everywhere they are mandated, the risk teams need to be independent. And there is a tremendous value in having a good risk person in any organization. Right. And uh, and I'm not speaking just about finance. There is now, I mean, I, I, if you hear any of these podcasts about supply chains recently, you would find that somebody, the job of risk is like to get GPUs to operate your SaaS farm. Right. That itself is a risk. And you could not procure because there was no supply chain. There was inavailability in the markets. So risk management is manifold. Right, medical insurance, medical area is another thing. So there are lots of areas we speak about: enterprise risk, financial risk, logistics, and so many areas where you can do right. And in financial risk, obviously, specifically, you have requirements like FRM and and so on. But in and uh, separately, obviously, as a trader, you know, to trader is being risk manager in and out. Right, you don't live by external world. You inherently have to be a risk manager yourself. In fact, I, I mean, it might be. Uh, not widely, it might not be a popular opinion, but I actually think very good traders usually end up being very good risk managers. And you can see the top hedge funds, the risk managers that they have are usually ex-traders who kind of done quite well, whether it's Millennium or 
you know, anything, etc. So career-wise, I think risk is one area where there is greater awareness. There is, in fact, the word risk now has much wider ambit, so to speak. And even if you were to be a startup, in fact, what should happen is it's like computers, right? Now you no longer, I mean, computer science engineering is kind of a, a programming skills is now necessary for any job, right? Similarly, risk, and in fact, I'll go one step back. In some sense, understanding data, right? Which is a precursor for understanding risks, right? Is a necessity in any job, anything, right? It's a skill that it is not like risk jobs will value more. In fact, if you were a CEO of a company and you understood your risks well, you can add far more value than somebody who doesn't. Thank you for listening to Data Shatter. If you like this show, please leave a comment, share and subscribe to the podcast. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you go to get your podcasts. Once again, this is Karthik signing off. Thank you. Thank you.